Dr. Matthew Lennon is a 2020 Tim Fisher John Monash Scholar and the first to receive the prestigious scholarship under that name. He graduated from medicine at the University of New South Wales with the University Medal and Honours in Neuroscience. And Matt has gone on to study at Oxford where he's hoping to use the knowledge and skills acquired to bring better dementia research, therapeutics and care back to Australia. And he joins us today from Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. G'day, Matt. Welcome to the program. G'day, Justin. Great to be on here. Okay, so what uh, what brought you to Wagga Wagga? Well, it was a couple of things, really. But I used to come down and visit some family here, and uh, I found that the doctors here, there weren't that many of them, but they were very invested in their students and they really wanted them to succeed. I also found that when I when I met patients here, they had an openness and a, a sort of um, a friendliness and affability that, that was sort of unique in many ways. And so in my third year of medicine, I decided I'd come down here for a year and I would study and I, and I did my all my studies here and that was fantastic. And then I came back for internship, residency, and then I stayed on for another, um, you know, eight months after uh, I finished my first two years as a doctor. Okay. And so what are you actually doing now? You, you're working at the hospital, are you? Yeah. So currently at the moment, I'm working at, uh, at the ICU in uh, Calvary Hospital, which is the, the private hospital here in Wagga Wagga. And how long have you been doing that? Uh, just four days. <laughs> oh, okay. <Yeah. laughs> literally, literally, you've just started. So I'm just I'm here for a couple of weeks, and then most of the time, most of what I'm doing at the moment is uh, I, I'm trying to wrap up my doctorate at UNSW uh, that I'm that I'm doing in Alzheimer's, dementia, cognitive decline, and uh, the genetic relationship between hypertension and those outcomes. Wow. Okay. Well, let's let's get into that. Tell us about the research that you're currently doing. When you think about dementia, and there are two main kinds, uh, vascular dementia and Alzheimer's dementia, you think um, we need some kind of magical therapy or treatment or pill to cure it. And that's very true. We definitely do need a cure because we, we've known about Alzheimer's dementia, which comprises about 70% of all dementia cases since 1906, and we have no good treatment yet. So we definitely need a cure. But Given that we've been waiting over 100 years for a cure, we also need to think very carefully about the here and now for dementia prevention and what we can do to prevent it. So my, my research right now looks into how, what can we do right now to prevent as many dementia cases because we are going to see an epidemic of dementia come through in the next 30 or 40 years. Um, what can we do? Why, why, do why, do you, why do you say that? Just because we're, we're living longer. Yeah, well, and, and the population is becoming more and more elderly. So we know that uh, we have in Australia, there are about 400,000 dementia cases um, now in 2020. And by 2050, that'll be over a million. We know that between 20, 2000 and uh, 2020, the people, the, the percent of people over the age of 65 increased from 12 to 16%. And by 2050, that'll be 25% of the whole population. So one in four people will be over 65. And that's already the reality that they're seeing in Japan. So it's definitely a, a an epidemic that's coming. 
And my research asks, how can we prevent that? And it particularly focuses on blood pressure. And what we found in, in my, my research so far is that you need to make sure that your blood pressure isn't more than 140 on 80. Um, so th that's the standard systolic diastolic blood pressure reading. Uh, you also want to avoid having blood pressure uh, below 110, uh, so um, on on 70. And if you're around that, if you're on an antihypertensive medication, you need to come off that. Uh, and what we're this what we're getting into now, and we haven't published yet, is that blood pressure variability may also be a big risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Really? What do yes. they call it? I think it's like the silent killer, isn't it? Um, <laughs> high blood pressure yeah i mean hypertension affects 1 billion people worldwide and something like 40 to 60 percent of people over the age of 40. so it's it is a, a very prevalent um and truly dangerous disease and it's particularly dangerous because people have it it doesn't bother them so they don't think about it but it causes consequences in the long term so just back on um alzheimer's and dementia you mentioned obviously there is no cure and it's been around for a very long time. As an expert in the field, are we are we close? Are we is is there anything out there that can give us a bit of hope that maybe soon there might be something? Certainly. So there are some uh, really exciting developments in Alzheimer's disease. So it was just last year that the FDA in the States approved yep. a, a drug called aducamumab. And aducamumab, it is, a, it is a mouthful. <laughs> it's, it's a monoclonal antibody. So it's a little antibody that you inject into your veins and it goes into your brain and it sucks up this protein called amyloid. And amyloid is one of the main pathological proteins in Alzheimer's disease. Now, it's controversial. Because the initial clinical, it, there was a lot of excitement about this, um, and the 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 initial clinical trials showed that it wasn't effective, and it was very expensive, between sixty and eighty thousand US dollars a year. Um, so it's going to make the the pharma companies big money uh, because a lot of people have Alzheimer's disease. Then some of the later revision of some of the later clinical trial data showed that at high doses for mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, it was effective. Uh, there, there was a big blow up over this and it was complicated and people weren't sure that this was, it was right to approve it, but it is a demonstration that such treatments are possible. Now, the, in Oxford, I published a review looking at all the possible genetic therapies for Alzheimer's disease. And this is where I think the exciting bit comes in because um, the, so as you know, the COVID vaccines are effectively genetic therapies. So at least yes. the, the Pfizer and the Moderna, you, you inject this little bit of RNA and the RNA produces a protein and then you, you develop immunity to, to that COVID protein. So what uh, one group, the Tsudzinski group in uh, UCSF in the States is doing is they're injecting straight into the brain of Alzheimer's disease patients a genetic therapy. So it's a little um, 
it's How do you a inject viral. straight into the brain? You just you literally just plug a needle straight through the skull. <laughs> it's pretty hectic. <laughs> it's pretty Stop it. That is okay. I shouldn't have asked that question. Okay, go on. <laughs> so they just they plug this needle right in and they inject this genetic therapy. And what it has in it is a, it codes a protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And what that does is upregulate plasticity, plasticity in the brain. And, and, and when I say that, I mean neurons that have remained stable and unchanging for a very long time will suddenly start to sprout more axons and dendrites and more, make new connections and start to learn and reform networks again. And they've found that it's effective in monkeys. Uh, it's definitely effective in mice. They haven't shown that it's effective in humans yet, but it's this kind of thinking, this kind of exciting study that I think will will eventually bring some therapies to Alzheimer's disease. So, so Matt, just on that, okay, so when COVID hit, basically every scientist in the world you know, stopped and the focus was we need a vaccine. Let's smash this out together. Let's get this done. And through the miracle of science, we're now getting people vaccinated very, very quickly. Why is that not possible um, to try to do the same approach with dementia? That's a really good question, Justin. And I think there are probably two or three factors. Mm -hmm. The, The first factor is that Treating infectious diseases has always been easier than treating degenerative diseases. Okay. So um, yes. we, it's easy for bodies and our immune system is primed to do this, to identify outside triggers and wipe them out. What you're trying to do with degenerative diseases is identify systems that, that aren't used to regenerating, and it might be cartilage in your... Um, in your joints or it might be neurons in your brain and trying to get rid of the bad stuff and replace it with new stuff. And the danger there is that every time you try to replace it with new stuff or replicating stuff, you risk things like cancer or abnormal growths or incorrect right. connection. Okay. So that's, that's the first factor. The second factor um, does relate to funding. So when you tell everyone that COVID's going to get you, uh, suddenly everyone, and in, in Italy, the initial case fatality rates were something like 14%. Everyone says, wow, I, I don't like the idea of a 14% chance of dying if I get this thing. So the impetus for governments and the funding was just astronomical. Like stop everything. We This yeah. is the number one priority, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and I think the third thing is that COVID vaccines and COVID therapies have been rewarded by um, positive outcomes. And they've had this cycle of of showing, look, if we invest in COVID research, we get COVID outcomes and we get get better outcomes. And that means that people, and particularly industry, private equity, um, big pharma, they're willing to put lots of money into this. Alzheimer's for the last however many years, probably 40 or 50 years, has had tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars plugged into it and almost every trial has come up unsuccessful and that cycle of repetitive failure has meant that um 
big pharmaceutical companies. The risk appetite isn't there, yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So in terms of your research, let's go back to your doctorate at the University of New South Wales. So what sort of, what sort of shape is your, um, your, your thesis in? Well, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be largely by publication and I've published three out of five articles and I've done um, a, a fair bit of the research for the other two articles that I, that I need to put out. So let's talk about Oxford because you, um, you won or you were awarded the Tim Fisher, the inaugural Tim Fisher part of the John Monash scholarship. That, that must have been um, an amazing thrill for you um, personally, professionally to get to get that, uh, but also then to go to Oxford. I'm keen to I'm keen to get your experience around that. Yeah, I mean, uh, first, uh, I have to say, I'm so extremely grateful to the to the John Monash Foundation, everyone there, Anne-Marie, um, and the CEO and the, all the board, they've been really, truly fantastic. And Marie's a legend. There you go. I'm giving her a plug. She's, She's the best. <laughs> Give her a shout out. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm also extremely grateful to Tim Fisher, uh, who's a truly great man. Um, and I think it was in his last address to, uh, it was a community organization about building up regional areas. He said, education is the key education is the key to getting to building rural communities and to building community in general uh, and to creating opportunities and this i think this scholarship is really a testament to that he was a he was a true giant of australian politics forget about what uh, what side of the aisle you're on he was universally i think admired and respected in terms of uh, the Oxford experience, it was awesome. Yeah, what made you choose Oxford? There are a couple of things. One was the fact that in Oxford they have the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Institute. Uh, okay, it's one right. of the, yep. it's where sort of some of the world's leading research is going on there. Another, I think, is um, a bit more poetic. Just knowing that um, some of my favourite literature and narratives, like. Um, all of C.S. Lewis's work and um, a lot of Tolkien's work and, you know, these, these sort of giants of literature have lived and breathed and mm. just soaked up that air. And I, I think going walking around, and Lewis Carroll, you know, Alice in Wonderland, walking around near where we lived, we saw things all the time that reminded us of the stories that had shaped us. I mean, when I think of... The, the sort of hero narratives in The Lord of the Rings and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You see how they were inspired by living in this incredible place. I mean, the, at my college, if you sat at this one stone table in the garden, it was an octagonal stone table. You look to the left and there was one smaller tower of Merton Tower. And it was looking at this other larger church tower called Magdalen Tower. and J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis used to sit there and Tolkien said, well, what if I had like two great principalities, you know, two big towers looking at each other? Um, and that was the inspiration for the two towers. And uh, C.S. Lewis right. sort of stone table. I didn't know that story. Yeah. And, and C.S. Lewis was sitting at the stone table and said, you know, this would be an awesome thing to sort of incorporate into my story. And that was the, that was the table that Aslan was sacrificed on. Um the if you walk into a church near where we lived you look at the back 
of the church. And there's a, a relic of a saint called St. Um, Lucy of Narnia. And uh, that was where Narnia came <laughs> really? from. So it's just lots of, lots of cool things like that. We'd walk around and just realize that there was so much history and culture that in, mm. in profound and subtle ways had shaped, you know, generations psychologically. And so when were you there? When were you in Oxford? So we were there from September 20 to September 2021. Right. So you would have been in the middle of COVID hitting. How was that? Yeah. Um, it was a little disrupting, but it wasn't too bad. Given that neuroscience is a very practical, hands-on okay. kind of discipline, we we still had to do quite a few things in person. So it meant that uh, it wasn't devoid of uh, interaction. And all up, our time was about six months living normally, six months living with some restrictions. Um, but we made some awesome friends and had a great time. It was really spectacular. Were there, um, tell me, in Oxford, were there, were there many other Australians over there? I imagine it probably was like packed with Aussies. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what I thought. It's hard to miss that accent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think what has brought, you know, there's been something like, seven Australian prime ministers who have studied at Oxford. So it seems to have just this reputation amongst Australians, particularly the fact that Bob Hawke sculled a, a yard glass and has a Guinness did the whole beer World thing record yes. and did the whole beer thing there. So that I think brings a lot of people. Um, and yeah, I think, yeah, it, it's it, for that reason, it's a, it's a popular place. And even, you know, Kevin Rudd, once he finished his term as prime minister wanted to be part of the club. So he's currently a, a DPhil or a PhD student there at Jesus college. So what? Um, yeah. is he? Yeah. Really? Yep. Yeah. Kevin Rudd is doing his, um, his PhD Doc, there. It could be a Dr. Rudd. Mm. Exactly. I know. So we, we will be having, uh, apparently, and this is just hearsay. He's doing uh, his DPhil in the personality of Xi Jinping. And, um, and apparently, you know, when when he wants some you know, ideas for his thesis, he'll just call up Obama and say, hey, Obama. Hey, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling with page 35. <laughs> <laughs> Give me your thoughts on Z, Eugene. <laughs> so, Matt, where did you grow up? So, I grew up on the outskirts of Sydney. Um, yeah. Kind of around Dural, Cherry yeah. Um, ah, the yeah. golden northwest. Exactly. And, yeah. and I'm going to presume that you're a pretty good student at school, in high school. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed school and reasonably well, yeah, yeah. And did you always, when you were going through year 12, did you did you think, right, this is like medicines for me, this is where I'm, this is where I'm heading and then got the grades accordingly or was it a, not such a straight line? I knew I wanted to do something good and something meaningful. Medicine certainly was a goal, but I also, um, applied and got into a, a philosophy and psychology course. So that was definitely, I was definitely tossing up going down into philosophy. Um, but uh, my, my godfather is a real estate agent. I had to ask him, you know, what do you think I should do? Uh, you know, I've got this offer for medicine. <laughs> I've got this offer for philosophy. And he just says, take the money. <laughs> <laughs> take the money. Take the money. Well, you could probably do both now. Probably do both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, with your research uh, into dementia, 
Um, how are you hoping to be able to use that in a in a practical sense um, in Australia? Yeah, so I, I think in two ways. Um, and I, I've really, I've tried to start walking down the path of both ways. The, the first is prevention and the second is cure. So with prevention, um, we need effective public health programs that identify and treat vascular risk factors. Um, so things like high blood pressure, um, diabetes, uh, low exercise, um, obesity and being overweight, uh, smoking, all these things contribute to dementia. So uh, we need a big effective public health programs that reduce rates of all of these things if we're going to ameliorate the, the significant and steep rise in dementia that we will see over the next 20, 30 years. Um, the second that is more sexy, I suppose you could say, is this idea of curing dementia or at least ameliorating it once it is present. So the I think where, where I want to go, and I've, I've written the review of where the evidence is up to, is trying to develop genetic therapies for Alzheimer's disease. And um, what I was really excited about was there was a, a few weeks ago, the Premier announced that there was, I think, $92 million in funding for this mRNA institute at UNSW. And that, I really think, is the future for many, many diseases. Uh, and particularly for Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's is not one disease. It's, me it's an end result of many different disease processes. And I think if we can begin to isolate each disease process and then with a targeted genetic therapy, stop that initial cause um, in the early stages of disease, we will find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. You're that confident? Yeah, I am actually. Um, yeah, good, I, good. I, I really think that we um, the cure is is coming uh, or at least an effective treatment is coming but uh, we'll need a lot of money and a lot of focused um, research or attention to to resolve it what australia needs more of is more mice and other animal research um, and then and then we need funding to translate that that mouse cell line uh, initial sort of finding um, to to human clinical trials. Um, and if we have a an effective core team of people who are able to develop and synthesize these genetic therapies, so similar technology to what was needed to make the COVID vaccines, then we, we will also need the, the clinicians, and this is where I hope to um, play a role in it, um, the clinicians who are able to translate that research, not just for Alzheimer's disease, but for things like Parkinson's and, and other and Huntington's and other neurodegenerative diseases. And that's, I think, how Australia is going to really step forward and become a world leader in this area. Matt, I've got a note here saying that when you were at university, you started something called Springboard Education. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that was a... When I would come down and, and uh, visit family and friends and, um, and just like come to community events in, in Wagga Wagga largely, but also mm. sometimes Orange, I, I just noticed that um, there wasn't the same availability of 
tutoring services uh, and there wasn't the same kind of educational academic culture uh, that I had grown up with. And mm -hmm. I think having experienced that, I realized that um, opportunities grow rapidly when you start to think about what you want to do and pursue that with intentionality and um, and you're given the tools to do that. So mm. the idea came to me that, you know, I, we could provide free or low cost tutoring to uh, students who wouldn't otherwise have access to that uh, to it in you know rural and also disadvantaged areas um mm. and you know we i ran spring World education with a few friends for probably seven or eight years uh and and so what, how did it work like what did what did you do we ran two kinds of programs the first was uh educational days or seminars and a lot of that given that a lot of our tutors were in medicine a lot of that was uh giving training for rural students that a lot of city students have um access access to in the undergraduate medical admissions test um and it wasn't extensive training but it was yeah it was it was what they needed um and and we had a lot of success out of that and then the other uh aside from that we gave hsc seminars essay writing mathematics um just sort of one day seminars that really gave people the fundamentals of what they needed to um to succeed and and do really well in hsc uh the other one was individual tutoring so if we had students who had been identified as disadvantaged we would um do online one-on-one -on -one tutoring so we were doing video lessons before it was cool i understand you've got obviously you're in wagga now and you've you've spoken about springboard education but you do have a strong love for the regional and rural parts uh of australia tell us about that yeah so um i think it started after i spent time here i mean i I'd, I'd grown up for most of my life in Sydney, and uh, and I I experienced what I later discovered in some research that I did. I, I experienced that um, having a, a better work life balance was far more possible in rural areas. One because things were accommodation and living and lifestyle was much much cheaper, and two because everything that you want to do, um, you know, amenities, friends, restaurants, they're so close, you know, they're, they're, they're all. Yeah. It's so just there. It's like five minutes away. Yeah, exactly. And, and that I found was so beneficial, um, not only to my mental health, but also just to, you know, the social well-being of the, of the whole community. Um, and I found that the, the patients themselves and the medical community were very tight knit and they had very close relationships. And it, there was, um, there was a real can do attitude because whereas if you're in a big center in a city, there will always be a, someone more expert than you usually nearby. So you can refer them to someone else or it's not your job because this is someone else's task. Whereas in, at least in the hospital system in Wagga, I found, if you had a problem, you were probably going to be the person who has to solve it. So there was there was something of a can-do attitude that I, I really appreciated. Um, 
the what else? So I, I did a, a big research paper um, looking at about 4,000 junior doctors in rural and regional versus metropolitan Australia. And I wanted to find out what, what was different about them. The, the first and most obvious thing that was different was that there was a greater rate of people who had grown up in a rural area and who were junior doctors there. But there was still only about 50%. And the other 50% were people that we call convertibles. So people who had grown up in a city, but uh, decided and wanted to live in a rural area. The what what differed in the in the satisfaction of the two groups was that um, people who lived in a rural area found that their their colleagues had better understanding that they had you know they needed work life balance, um, they had better access to leisure activities, and um, and they had better overall work satisfaction. So it was uh, it was like a telling and very interesting study and. Um, and I think it, it provided impetus for for rural hospitals, which often have difficulty recruiting doctors, to kind of sell to um, to metropolitan doctors. Exactly. That you know, there's 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 something great about living in the country, and um, and it should be considered. I would agree. Well, Matt, it's been terrific catching up with you on uh, on the Scholars podcast. It's always nice to uh, to hear from someone who's been overseas and has come back and making big things happen. So we're really going to uh, follow your career with interest and best of luck with um, finishing off your research. And uh, we wish you all the very best. That's Dr. Matt Lennon coming onto the program. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Justin.